the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And today we're going to be talking about something really uh, urgently important, which is how to have a happy holidays in an unhappy world. And that world, you just have to look at the front page of any newspaper or the Internet, and we all know that it's one bad news story after another. The economy, terrorists, corruption in government, um, you know, just murder, mayhem, all these kinds of things. And so it is um, really difficult uh, to get into the holiday spirit. We're all trying. And I've been doing some shows lately to help you get into that spirit. And today I have a really special show because um, I'm going to be bringing together for you the concept of how to have a happy holidays or how to have a happy any day is really through giving. And today I'm going to give you two examples of this. One of them is to remind you or to let you know for the first time, if you've never heard of this, story by O'Henry called The Gift of the Magi, and Magi means wise men. And then we're going to be talking with my guest, Beth Russell, and she is the author of a book called Forever Lily, An Unexpected Mother's Journey to Adoption in China. And she has quite an amazing story, sort of um, uh, what, the reluctant or the unexpected um, adoptee mother might be another way of calling it. But she has learned um, unexpectedly how happiness is really through giving. And so let's start, before I introduce Beth, um, let me start with reading to you this short story, The Gift of the Magi. And um, it takes place... In London, it was written, interestingly, it was written in 1906, and it is, it is just as relevant today, as over a hundred years later, as it was then. And I guess it's something that we all need to be reminded of every, more than every hundred years. Okay, here goes. One dollar and eighty-seven cents, that was all, and sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, one dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beggar description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. We don't use that word so much anymore. 
In the vestibule below was a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity, when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat, walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim, her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. Perhaps you have seen a pier glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly, she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within 20 seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some day just to someday to dry, just to to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still, while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Safrani, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madam, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sophrony. Will you buy my hair, asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the masses with a practiced hand. Give it to me. Quick, said Della. 
Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value, the description applied to both. $21 they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror, long, carefully, and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair way, away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit for saying little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I am still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat, and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of a quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair, asked Jim laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold. 
I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered. She went on with sudden serious sweetness, but nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what's the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. <laughs> well, this is an interesting time for a, uh, a break because we're uh, coming to the <laughs> ending that is worth waiting for. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host talking to you today about how to have a happy holidays in an unhappy world. When we come back, I'll finish the story, The Gift of the Magi, and introduce my guest, Beth Russell. So stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. At an accident, the people you may encounter may be attorneys, doctors, and insurance agents. How do you protect yourself and your family? Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff, an experienced trial attorney and former legislator. Attorney Woodruff and his expert guests assist and inform on what to do in a crisis, what steps to take, what to avoid, and most important, what you need to know to get through the process. Meeting by Accident broadcasts every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. Because being informed makes all the difference. Tune into Meeting by Accident with attorney Tom Woodruff. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST for 
4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, coming to you today uh, to um, help you discover how to have a happy holidays in an unhappy world. And we're starting um, by reading The Gift of the Magi, a short story by O. Henry. And um, I'm, I'm just at the... Just at the uh, climactic ending here, and then after I finish, we're going to be talking with my guest, Beth Russell. She's the author of Forever Lily, An Unexpected Mother's Journey to Adoption in China, which really has um, a lot of connections to this story and to the overall theme of the show, which is that in order to find happiness in an unhappy world during the holidays and any time, the answer is giving. So let's get back to the gift of the Magi, and we left Della uh, and Jim, uh, this married young married couple, very poor, and um, Della finding herself with only a dollar and eighty-seven cents the day before Christmas, um, went out and uh, gave up her most prized possession, which was her hair. She sold her hair, and um, she was able to buy a watch chain for her husband, Jim, because his most prized possession was this gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. So he, they just came home, and Jim is staring at her lack of hair with a very strange look. And he said to her, Don't make any mistake, Dell, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy, and then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the Lord of the Flat. For there lay the combs. The set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Obviously, this story does take place in New York, not in London. (laughs) Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell, with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. 
And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh, Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, he said, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Oh, all who give and receive gifts, such as they, are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest, they are the Magi. Wow, you know, <laughs> I've read this story um, over the years. I mean, I remember reading it first in elementary school, and it still gives me the chills. So um, I hope that uh, if you haven't ever read it before, that, that this is something you'll treasure too. And if you have, I hope you really enjoyed hearing it again because we can't be reminded too many times of the gift of the Magi, and that gift is love. And talking about people who give gifts of love, let me introduce my guest, Beth Russell. Again, she's the author of Forever Lily, An Unexpected Mother's Journey to Adoption in China. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'll just, uh, I know you, uh, during the break, you were telling me that there were so many um, similarities or things that connections that you felt between this, that story and your own story. So why don't you just go ahead and start? Um, yeah, my story um, is very unique, and, and as I was telling you in the break, it happened at Christmas time nine years ago, and I've always thought of it as a truly a Christmas story in the classic vein. And the gift of the Magi has so many points in it that I could relate to, um, and my story um, uh, of becoming an unexpected mother at Christmas time. I had gone to China with a friend who was adopting a baby from an orphanage there, and I had no intention whatsoever of doing so myself. Um, I was going as a companion for her, and just to see China, I thought it would be very interesting. And when we got to China, uh, the the trip really unraveled and became something life-altering for me. Uh, the, the baby had been brought to my friend at the hotel room, um, and less than 24 hours later, my friend told me that she could not adopt this baby and that she was going to leave her there um, and return her to the orphanage. And uh, we happened to be able to go to the orphanage and see the conditions there. And, 
it was life-altering in so many ways just to to see so many children that had been left behind. Um, It was um, one of those times in life where everything you've ever been taught or ever thought you knew about what was right sort of came and hit you in the face and asked asked me, you know, what, what will you do to live your values, to live your truth. And, and the answer for me was I wanted to bring this baby home. I, I had an immediate bond and connection with her, and, and it was overwhelming, honestly. It was something where my heart just was blown wide open, and I had to follow through on that, even though my life was not set up for that. I, my husband and I had been married for about 12 years at the time and weren't intending... Um, at that time, to, to have a baby or an infant, um, he had children from his first marriage who were grown. And so How old was, were they? Um, at the time, uh, his youngest daughter had just left for college, so they oh. were all in their late teens, early 20s. And it had been a rough road um, for us, as it often is in, in step-families, and for them as well. And so this was the furthest thing from my mind. Which, and do you mind me asking how old you were? I was 37. And how old was your friend who was supposed to adopt the baby? She was 45 at the time. Hmm. And she had a son from her marriage, and he was eight years old. And the, the reason that she said her husband would, did not go with her was because her son was going to stay home and, and go to school for that 10 days that we were going to be gone, which sounded, you know, very plausible. But then, you know, as the trip unfolded and, and as I understood this process a little more, I came to know that this was really a, a, an unusual thing, that the husband wouldn't go. And it was a red flag, actually. Um, because as it turns out, he really was not committed to, to the adoption. And that was one of the reasons why she became overwhelmed and decided she couldn't go through with it. Hmm. But she had been, but this was something that she had planned for for a while. At least a year and a half. It was almost close to two years for them. And that's, she also was a person who is not flighty in the least. This would have been one of the last people I would expect. Mm you know, to, to go through a process like this and then, and then change your mind so, so abruptly and so definitively. And um, it shocked me um, very much. I, I think I did go into shock immediately when she told me because I was thinking, you know, this was going to be a lovely story and I was going to witness this beautiful act, which mm-hmm. I, you know, I really, really was supportive of, of what she was doing. And I felt such a strong connection with these babies that we saw, and I was so happy for that baby. And then when it flipped, and I, I started to think, you know, this, this child could have had a different life, but, you know, if, this, if she goes through with turning her back in, she will not have a life. And it became about life and death, literally, I think, for her. Mm-hmm. And she, she was not... Um, doing well at the time when, when she came to us. She was supposed to be 13 months old, but looked more like about an eight-month-old developmentally and couldn't turn over on the bed, couldn't sit up, that kind of thing. And, and I, you know, I felt very strongly that she was just sort of hanging on to life. Hmm. Um, and, and it was a tenuous situation. I, I didn't feel she would survive a return um, to the conditions there. And... Um, you know, for me, it it was going to the orphanage at that time of year. Also, you know, the Christmas time, I couldn't help but think of of 
of Christmas stories, and the reason was, you know, I thought of, of the lowly conditions that um, Jesus was suppo- supposedly born in, and I kept thinking of that, that, you know, we, we don't know what the value of each human will be to humanity or to um, anyone in particular, and what I saw so clearly in this child was that she had joy and life to give, and that it would be a great waste if that weren't allowed to happen. Hmm. And that became my sort of driving motivation, that, that that sort of potential had to be salvaged somehow in her. Well, uh, we will take off um, right there when we come back, because um, just imagining you in the hotel room with your friend and, and this, this change of events is just... Uh, must have been really amazing. We will. Um, I'd like. I'm sure we'd all like to hear you tell us about it. We we need to take a break. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and my guest is Beth Russell. So stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guests, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. 
If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today about how to have a happy holidays in an unhappy world, and the answer is um, by giving. My guest is Beth Russell. She is the author of Forever Lily, An Unexpected Mother's Journey to Adoption in China. And um, I couldn't help <laughs> sneaking in some additional questions during the break because the story is so fascinating. And I was asking, of course, as a psychiatrist, trying to understand why her friend um, uh, couldn't open her heart, as Beth said, um, to this baby that she that was put in her arms, I guess, um, when they got to China. And um, Beth was starting to describe that a few, couple of weeks before they, they got to China, uh, a photograph was sent of the baby. And why don't you take it from there? That, yeah, we saw a photograph. My friend shared it with me, and it was of a, you know, a, a small baby who had a very, I called it a, fierce look. It, it was just the very most unusual expression on a baby I've really ever seen, um, a very determined look and someone who you would think would be someone to be reckoned with. Um, and, you know, the the photograph was a little disturbing, I, I have to say, just because you wonder what would produce a look mm. like that in a, mm. in a young child. And um, when we got to China and they brought the baby to the hotel room, I happened to be the first one to actually see this baby. I was I, I was so excited when I got there, and I didn't know why. I was feeling, I describe it in the book as I felt as I used to feel as a child when Santa's about to come, when <laughs> Christmas is about to happen. And I didn't know why. It was the most unusual thing. So... We get to the hotel, we go to our rooms, I go out in the hallway waiting to, for them to bring her, and they, these um, three orphanage um, workers get off the elevator holding these three babies that were for our group, and I immediately knew which of the three was was my friend's baby. And, you know, later I'd say, well, I saw the picture of her, but honestly, we don't know if that picture was really of her because mm. it really did not look like her. Mm. But I knew that was her child and how, I don't know. But I, it was immediate. It was a, something happened right there in that moment that I, it took me uh, several years and a book to kind of figure out for myself what had happened. But it was it was an instance of my heart opening, and um, you know I think that didn't happen by accident. I, I talk in the book that for many years beforehand, I, I practiced meditation, and I was very much you know interested in um, spirituality and and learning about different religious traditions and so forth. And I think that I'd spent many many years preparing for that very moment, though I didn't know it, and I didn't know what I was preparing for. Mm. Uh huh. And so, did you have a feeling before you knew your friend wasn't going to want to take her? Did Did you almost at that moment have a feeling that I want her even before you knew that? Um, you know, honestly, no. <laughs> I felt that. Oh, you know, I thought I had lots of thoughts and feelings running through my head at, at that moment, um, and just it was more like you know. In fact, I thought, you know, I'm sort of glad it's not me because 
Um, immediately, the baby was very needy. I mean, we could see that she required a lot of care that first night. She was very traumatized. She had, uh, she cried, you know, most of that first night. Um, she was starving. She was, uh, it was, it was a very upsetting night. And, and I, I had feelings that first night of, I'm, I'm just sort of glad this isn't my responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, I cared about her immediately, but I was in no way thinking, you know, I want this this child for the rest of my life or anything like that. And, you know, my friend, I, I, I've come to the also, you know, thought or realization that one of the main things that happened with her is that she had an idea in her head of adopting this child so that it could provide something for her. Mm-hmm. And, and when the baby came, it was obvious that ah. whoever was going to care for this child had to give everything to this child. Mm. And and that was not what she was expecting, um, and so she couldn't um, she couldn't go there. Mm-hmm. So then, what happened after she she admitted that she this was just not going to be for her? Mm-hmm. Um, how did you make that transition that it was going to be for you? <laughs> well, it was uh, it was the you know within 24 hours I, I had gone out of the room and I'd come back in and she just dropped this bomb on me that you know she said just straight out I cannot do this. And I, at first, like I said, I think I immediately knew, but I went into shock. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I pressed her on it. You know, what are you talking about? I, you know, I know you're, this is a very, you know, um, intense situation. It's, it's, a, you know, a lot going on here. I'll help you any way I can to care for her while we're on this trip and so forth. And she was not, she was in no way amenable to that. She was very much, no, I, I cannot. I cannot do it. It just does not feel right. And so as she continued in that vein, I, I almost felt a panic, actually, about it. I, I just couldn't conceive of what she was talking about doing. And I, I just blurted out, you know, I'll, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her. There's, don't send her back. I'll take her. Hmm. And it was even before I could even think about whether that was something I really wanted mm-hmm. or not. And that came later, you know, that came over the next few days where I really, really went into that, you know, asking myself the deeper questions, you know, are, do you really want to do this? And I found deep, deep down, yes, I really did. I really did want to do it. I, I felt that it was the right thing um, to do, that if I left without doing it, my life would in effect be over in a way, and and that sounds melodramatic, but in some sense something in me would have died because I had not taken the step at least to try. Well, at what point did you call your husband? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I love this part of the story, and I I think this resonates with people deeply because it's really unbelievable what happened. It was uh, about a day later when she had gone through a cycle of, you know, confirming over and over again that this was not what she wanted to do and asking me, are you, you know, do you want to do this? And, and me saying yes. And she, you know, pressed me to call him, which I did, not knowing at all what to say. You know, it was one of those I was scared to death. You know, my heart's beating a million miles a minute. And I placed the call, and he could hear right away in my voice. You know, I said, he, he was worried because I wasn't supposed to be calling from China. And he just asked, what's wrong? And I just said, I, this, this trip isn't going as planned. And he said, what is it? And I said, she does not want this baby. 
And he, there was silence, just, just like now. There was silence on the phone for just a few moments. And he, then he said, well, we'll take her. Hmm. Just like that. And I had already known it, that I had to bring her home, that if he had not been acceptant of this, I still would have had to do it. I didn't honestly know if it would, you know, blow my life up or not. Um, but it was something that I had to do. Hmm. And he, you know, being the person that he is, it was just spontaneous for him, and it was a defining moment in our marriage and in both of our lives. It changed everything from that point on. Hmm. And so, um, I mean, had you, I know this is a personal question, but had had you and he planned not to have children? You said he had he had these stepchildren. Yes, he had three, and I was um, 23 when we got married, and he, his children were young. They were eight, six, and four at the time, mm-hmm. and we we were very active in their lives, and they, they lived with us periodically over those years, and it wasn't ever a I decided, no, I wouldn't have children, but it never felt right, and it never felt like a good idea to bring even more chaos into this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about that time I started, friends that had been asking me for a few years, you know, you're not getting any younger kind of mm-hmm. thing, when, what are you, are you going to do something? And I would say, you know, I just don't feel that drive to make it happen one way or another. I just felt that if it were going to happen, something would happen. I just was very much at peace with that um, at the time. So it was... Um, Certainly a situation where, you know, events sort of forced my decision and it was absolutely, you know, the right thing and a gift, an absolute gift. And so now this was um, December of 99, so she's 9 now. She's 10. Or 10, yes, because she was 13, yeah. She just turned 10. Uh, so, well, I know we're going to be um, probably having a have to having to break in a minute, but obviously she's been a joy to your life. Yes, and uh, you know, I think you know it's been clear to me since the first moment that the gift was from her to me. It wasn't from me to her, and it was for me to say yes to that gift and. I did, and that's changed everything. There has to be someone to receive the giving. And she, just in who she is and and what she is all about, the gift was all to me. And I I feel overwhelmed with it sometimes. I I told her this week, because it's our anniversary of the week when I brought her home, you know, I told her there will never be another Christmas gift like you. You know, you were my gift for my life. And... um, I just, I thank her, you know, for being in my life. The circumstances that brought us together are so unusual and so special. And, you know, we cherish that as a family. And we actually, we have another daughter also that we adopted in 2004, um, sort of to sort of extend the joy because uh, it was, it's been such an amazing experience. And, and we just wanted to add to our family that way. Well, yes, and and um, uh, when we come back, I have some more, a lot more questions <laughs> for you. But but you know, it's ironic because you were saying before about how um, your friend had wanted to adopt a baby for herself, mm-hmm. and then realized how much work it would be, mm-hmm. you know, how much she would have to give, and and yet it turned out really to be a gift 
for you because you were willing to, to do all of that nurturing. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we do need to take a break. Um, my guest is Beth Russell. Her book is Forever Lily, An Unexpected Mother's Journey to Adoption in China. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guest jim draws from successes with professionals college high school and youth teams coaches and players learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure tension and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every tuesday at 4 p.m pacific time right here on america's voice voice america voiceamerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking to you today about how to have happy holidays in an unhappy world. And the key is giving, and uh, my giving guest is is telling us her fascinating story, which she has written about in a book called Forever Lily, An Unexpected Mother's Journey to Adoption in China by Beth Russell. And uh, why don't you uh, continue where you left off? Actually, I was asking you about how uh, about your friend and whether she had followed through with, um, whether she knew anything about Lily's development once you got back to the States. You know, no, we have not been in touch, and we made a conscious decision not to um, at the end of our, all the legal issues that, that we had to resolve after we got back around the adoption. You know, the four of us, the two couples, really decided it would be best for especially Lily and all of us if we sort of didn't maintain contact. Mm. Um, some things happened after we got back from China, which were very, very difficult, which I write about some of them in the book. She 
uh, at one point thought she was going to change her mind and mm. take the baby back, and it, it was just a very difficult situation. Mm. So um, we don't have contact. Though um, I did write her when the book came out and let her know about it and told her, you know, that I very grateful to her that she was the instrument of all of this happening, and I, I truly feel that. Uh-huh. And then what made you decide to adopt, to go back to China and adopt a second daughter? You know, I think I knew right away when we came home that we would do that. I just, after seeing um, the orphanage there and seeing how many children were in need over there, um, there was no question. And it took me, you know, in the story when you read The Gift of the Magi, I was, I was really interested in when O. Henry says that, you know, generosity added to love is a mammoth task to repair the damage of that. It struck a chord with me because I think it took me about a year, really, to get back on my feet. I was emotionally drained and emotionally sort of um, vibrating over this whole thing. My whole life had just changed on a dime like that, and I had to spend a lot of time just sort of processing that. And, you know, after that year and we got on our feet and everything was great, we really knew right then we should start the adoption process again, and we did. Um, and Lily, by that time, by the time she was about two and a half, was starting to ask if we could get a sister. Hmm. Um, and she thought at that time that babies only come from China, so <laughs> that was the natural thing. We were going to get a baby from China. So we did, and, and we um, went back in 2004 and adopted Jaden, um, who's five now. And again, it was another miracle of the heart. You know, I, I think of these adoptions as, as miracle stories, and um, the minute they placed Jaden in my arms, she was my child, and she knew it and I knew it. And it, that, to me, is, is so unexplainable by sort of the ordinary cause and effect that we think of. And, uh, you know, the bond was immediate, and how do you explain that? It's just a gift. Hmm. And now you and your husband have formed a foundation called the Golden Phoenix Foundation. Could you tell us about that? We did. We, um, again, that was something that we talked about very early on, you know, when I described to him what I had seen there and how many children are in need. And then just, you know, I had to get up to speed on this whole issue. I didn't go over there intending to adopt, so I didn't know a lot about children in orphanages or or what was going on. And so when I did and when I realized, you know, there there just needs – there a lot of help needs to be given in this area around the world. It's not just in China. It's in a lot of places. We knew we wanted to start some sort of philanthropic organization, and so we formed the Golden Phoenix Foundation um, in 2005, and we are doing – we're trying trying to, you know, raise funds right now for a project that we want to do um, where we um, build actual facilities, living facilities for children who um, are now living in institutions or orphanages and hopefully give them a more family and home-like environment where they can have a better quality of life. Where would these be, in the various countries or in America? Mm-hmm. No, in, in various countries. Um, in hopefully, you know, we've, we've got contacts and people we're working with already um, in South America, some in Africa, some in China, wherever we can, you know, wherever we can find um, a place where it makes sense to do that and where the, you know, local officials and people are very supportive of it, you know, that's where we, we hope to go. So we want to build this slowly and build it well and, and, and hopefully have many of these facilities at some point. And are you also going to be trying to make it easier? I mean, I know um, even from my clinical practice, the various couples who wanted to adopt 
and met up with all kinds of um, legal and and just different kinds of rules um, mm-hmm. from here, from the different countries that they wanted to adopt to, you know, who they, I mean, some, they're very, um, it's not that easy, even though there are all of these abandoned children, it's still very difficult for couples to adopt. It certainly is, and it seems so senseless when you really step back and think about it, when you understand what the numbers are, how many children there are, and the obstacles are created. They're created by government, they're created by, you know, nationalistic pride, they're created by just um, lack of, of, you know, understanding of, of the great need, and, you know, we've our country has just ratified the um, Hague Treaty on International Adoptions last spring, which, you know, adds even more another layer of, you know, um, sort of bureaucratic um, issues onto the whole adoption process, which is hopefully meant to make the process more transparent, but also makes it more difficult. So it is a difficult process, and it, it doesn't seem like adoption is going to be the answer for the vast number of children that are left in orphanages. And so that's why we decided, you know, if if adoption isn't going to be the answer, um, then we hope to go to those children where we can in in their in their home countries or whatever, and maybe that will be the way to go. Mm-hmm. I see, because um, to try to make sure that at least their living conditions are better. Right. Um, if it's going to be that, that it, hard to... It's clear from research studies, Harvard did a big study on um, the effects of institutionalization yeah. on children, and it is clear that a large institution can't provide the nurturing that children need. And, you know, these smaller type environments where they, they may have more one-on-one care and they have people that care about them through their life, you know, it really comes down to, to love. Love is the one ingredient that you have to have. And you can have pretty dire conditions, but if you have that love and caring, the child can flourish. And that's, you know, you, you have to find a way to try to provide at least that caring, which will let the child reach a certain level of potential. And now do you have... Um, a website that people can go to to find out more about the Golden Phoenix Foundation? We do. It's um, www.thegoldenphoenixfoundation.org. And uh, we um, actually um, have some some stuff on there about our projects we're doing. We're doing a water project in, in Honduras, which we're excited about, and um, some other things. And we will keep updating it as we move forward on, on some of these projects I've just been talking about. Well, that's great. And and um, do you think you might also at some point bring some or maybe uh, some suggestions or resources um, to people to, to help make that process of adoption easier? Well, I mean, your friend obviously had, and I guess you in the, the second time around, did did find a way. Well, I think, you know, for me, I mean, the process itself is one thing, and it's just going to always probably be difficult, the legal and paperwork and the financial and all that. But what I've said since this happened ten, nine years ago is that the most important piece of all this to make an adoption successful or easier is the emotional preparation. And that is what's missing so often for couples. You know, they mm-hmm. go through the, the um, all of the, the ins and outs of making sure that they've got the papers and, and the money and everything, but then they forget about this is, you know, this is one of the most intense and intimate human things you can do. You, you are bringing, a, you know, a human soul into your life. 
you have to prepare emotionally. Yes, yes. people kind of get lost in the paperwork that's right. and, and that's right. Don't don't actually confront their own emotions. Exactly. Well, thank you very much um, for sharing your story. And let me You're say welcome. again, the the website um, that you all should go to to check this out is the Golden Phoenix P H O E N I X Foundation. The Golden Phoenix Foundation dot org. And um, Beth Russell, thank you very much for joining us. The book, again, is Forever Lily, An Unexpected Mother's Journey to Adoption in China. And thank you for giving us the gift of your story and for giving so many other children around the world uh, the gifts that you're you're continuing to give with your foundation. We hope so. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a a real pleasure. Well, thank you. And thank you all for listening. And... um, Again, the, remember, the uh, for those of you who may have turned in late, the story at the beginning of the show was called The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry, a short story. So thank you all for listening again and hoping that uh, your holidays are you're on the right track to having a happy holiday. And, again, the answer is giving. That's, that's the track. <laughs> so next week um, we'll be back again. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.